0: We did plan that, actually. It's okay. So it really is a pleasure to be with you this week. You know, I, um, as Shaka alluded to, had a week where I didn't feel particularly mighty, where I didn't feel like I had everything in control. And I think in those weeks, we come to the word knowing that it's sufficient to sustain us. And so it's particularly uh, important and memorable and poignant for me today to do that with you all. Um, we're going to be continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount and some of earliest, Jesus' earliest teachings. Uh, we're going to be picking up where we left off in uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 21 uh, through 26. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and, and turn there now. We also have some Bibles in the middle uh, of the rows. Those work just fine. You go ahead and grab one of those and pass them on down if you want to. You know, in this section of the Bible... Jesus says some really shocking things. Starting with what we looked at last week, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in case that's not coming through loud and clear enough for you, it's important for us to realize that we're actually in a part of Scripture that's a crescendo, where Jesus is now going to give example after example after example of what he means, getting louder and louder, until we get to chapter 5, verse 48, where he says, Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What we're studying today falls in that crescendo. You know, I think because this is such a familiar part of Scripture that we don't recognize how shocking it would have been to the people who were listening I mean, just imagine being a Jewish person sitting uh, on a hillside in the first century listening to Jesus saying something like this. We remember from last week what Matt told us that Jesus is actually saying two things. The first is, these people who you've looked up to as your spiritual authorities for your whole life, they've been teaching you to pursue faith the wrong way. And these people who you've been looking up to your whole life as your spiritual authorities, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness actually has to be better than theirs, has to be greater than theirs. It would be like saying to a freshman trying out for the high school basketball team, if you're not better than Michael Jordan, there's no way you're going to make the team. It would have seemed impossible to them. So what does Jesus mean? This section of the Sermon on the Mount is meant to help us see that Jesus cares about our hearts. Last week, Matt explained to us that when Jesus calls for a greater righteousness, he's not calling for more of the same kind of righteousness, as if adding an additional law or an additional rule to the 600 and some they had would make any difference. No, Jesus is calling us to a fundamentally different kind of righteousness. A single-minded, heart-based total love for and devotion to God. Starting with the passage we're going to study today, Jesus is going to give six examples of what he means there. And they're going to be no less shocking than what we've already heard. For example, next week, he's going to say, if you even look at someone with lust in your heart, you're no better off than you committed adultery. It'd be like a judge saying to you, I know you didn't actually steal anything, but because you thought about it, because you wanted to steal it, I'm going to sentence you to life in prison. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And so when we turn to our passage today, Jesus is going to lay out for us one example of what he means, what he wants for us in our single-minded love for and devotion and obedience to God. He's going to say, if you harbor anger in your heart, then you're no better off than a murderer. He's even going to take it one step further than that. He's going to say, not only are we to avoid anger, but we're to be full of reconciliation towards one another. What does the heart of a person who loves God and loves Jesus look like? It's absent anger and full of reconciliation. So if you've found... God's, uh, the passage today, would you stand in honor of God's word as I read for us from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. So as we dig into this uh, passage today, what we're going to start with is comparing verses 21 and 22. And I want to just take two minutes to comment about how Jesus is introducing this topic today because we're going to see it over and over again in Matthew chapter 5. That's how he introduces each of his six examples. He starts out by saying, You have heard that it was said. And then in the next verse says, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, and then he quotes something from the Old Testament, but I say to you, and he he says something else. And the reason this pattern is important is that right off the bat we want to say Jesus is not revising the Old Testament law here. He's not rewriting the Ten Commandments. He's not invalidating the Old Testament laws. How could he be? Just look at what he says in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if he's not rewriting or revising the Old Testament law, then what's he doing? He's showing here that the scribes and the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the time, had been interpreting the law the wrong way. They'd been interpreting the heart of the law the wrong way. And so Jesus is quoting the sixth commandment in, in verse 21, thou shalt not commit murder, When he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's trying to help us see that the Pharisees had been interpreting that law the wrong way. He's correcting a mistaken view that was held by a legalistic religious tradition. So the contrast Jesus is making isn't between the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus. The contrast he's making is between the false interpretation of the law and the true presentation of the law as given by Jesus. So this interesting pattern, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, we might paraphrase that. You might have heard some people saying God's law works one way. But I say to you, this is how God's law really works. And so in these verses in particular, verses 21 to 26, Jesus is correcting the mistaken idea that the only thing you have to do to be right with God is not commit murder. He does it by reframing their perspective. It's like saying, if you think the only thing God requires of you is that you not murder someone, then you've got another thing coming. Now, we don't get a lot of detail here about how the Pharisees might have been applying this particular law wrongly. And I I really hesitate to make up an example without a lot of historical context, lest you think, oh, were the Pharisees really doing all those terrible things? You know, but what we can say confidently is that the Pharisees were interpreting this law in its most narrow sense. Asking, how far can I go and still be right with God? I mean, what's murder anyway? What does that really mean? Now, I want to just say two quick things. The first is, I'm not sure if you've actually struggled with this problem or not. You know, in the years that I've been doing ministry, nothing surprises me. Sin is a terrible thing. And so this may actually be something that you've struggled with before. Asking, how far can I go? What, what does murder really mean? Especially if you've been wronged unjustly. This may be something that really speaks to you. I trust Jesus to know that. But maybe it's not. I'm thankful that many of us aren't pushed to the brink of, of wanting to commit murder. But don't dismiss it too quickly. Don't dismiss it too quickly because sin is a terrible thing and it can especially if you're wronged and pushed, people you love are, are hurt, this can be something that you can actually get pushed up against. And thinking you're better than this particular problem is actually what the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of. You know, that, that, I think, is where we get caught in this problem. Matt pointed it out for us last week. He said, are there places in your life where you're asking, how far can I go? How far can I go and still be innocent in God's eyes? What's the minimum I have to do to be okay. That's the kind of thinking that Jesus is saying. No, you're missing the point. The single minded, love for, and total obedience to God is so much more than not killing people. Jesus cares about our hearts. We're not supposed to commit murder. That's true. But we're also not supposed to have a heart full of anger or resentment or bitterness. And so if we keep going with our comparison of verses 21 and 22, we start to understand what Jesus is getting at a little more clearly. As we've talked about in verse 21, he starts out saying something his listeners would have thought they knew well. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But then in verse 22 and following, he cuts right to the heart of the matter, starts to reshape the way we think about honoring God. He says, actually, it's not just... Murder that makes you liable to judgment. But anger as well. And in verse 22, he's painting with broad strokes to give us a really full picture of what he means. He does include the term in general for anger. That sort of inner hatred, bitterness, unkind resentment. But he also includes a couple of examples where that anger bubbles up into full voice. Either speaking with contempt by calling them raka or worthless, or by insulting them, calling them a fool. And these three descriptions that Jesus is using is meant to be inclusive of both angry actions and angry thoughts. I think Jesus here is really challenging us to see that the same heart of anger is at play, whether it's given inward expression, verbal expression, or physical expression. So then if we were to summarize verse 22, we might say it this way. If you are angry with your brother, then you are liable to judgment. And in particular, the hell of fire. I think it would be helpful here to switch gears and start to ask what's the same about verses 21 and 22 because we've already said what's different. One highlights a mistaken view of the law, a narrow view of the law. One paints a broad picture of what it looks like to honor God. One describes murder. One describes anger. But the thing that verse 21 and 22 have in common is judgment. And like we've seen already, Jesus in verse 22 goes so far as to call it the eternal hell, the fire of hell. What he's saying is whether you commit murder or whether you're angry... The same fate awaits you, eternal judgment. If you have anger in your heart, then you're no better off than a murderer. Now, I think on first glance, that might seem a little extreme. Like maybe Jesus is exaggerating to make the point. And the reason I think it seems extreme is because the penalty might not seem to fit the crime to you. And nothing really gets us riled up like a punishment that's either too lenient or a punishment that's too harsh. I mean, even in our Constitution, the Eighth Amendment says, in our system of government, there will be no cruel and unusual punishment. So when I read things like, anger gets you the eternal fire of hell, I wonder, does this punishment really fit the crime? So to answer that, we need to start with what we know about God. We know that God is a God of justice, and he always has been. I'll just give you an example from the Old Testament and the way that he set up the laws to govern Israel. In Exodus chapter 22, he says, if you're caught stealing money, then you're going to pay twice that money back. You don't get your hand cut off. You don't get put to death. You steal money, you pay money. But then in Deuteronomy chapter 24, he says, if you're caught stealing a person and selling them into slavery, then you will forfeit your life. You steal money, you pay money. You steal someone's life, you pay with your life. That's what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means. It's not some vindictive statement of God's wrath. It means the punishment is always going to fit the crime. So when we see that Jesus is saying a person who's got anger in their hearts is guilty and subject to the eternal fire of hell, we should realize that that is not cruel and unusual punishment. Because God is a God of justice, that punishment really does fit the crime. And friends, that should make us take pause. Look at that consequence of eternal judgment and realize that anger is exactly that big of a deal. So I I think these first two verses serve as a warning for us. Like a child who's got a fork running near an electrical outlet. Jesus is saying, don't even go near that thing. Because anger is going to get you the eternal fire of hell. What I think that means for us is that we can no longer afford to take our anger casually. It means we can no longer excuse our anger as something that everybody does. Not really that big of a deal, just that one time. And I think this sort of casual anger is all around us. I mean, just look at the current political cycle for a minute. Anger seems to be the dominant emotion to me. Whether you're on the right or the left, whether you're angry at companies doing business overseas or you're angry at the wealthy of Wall Street, it might be worth it for you to ask what's driving your political motivations this season. Or maybe you should take a minute and scroll down your Facebook posts this afternoon. Look at how many of them are motivated by anger. Or look at how many of them are actually celebrating with somebody else and their anger. Friends, we can't afford to take anger casually anymore. You know, before we move on, I want to take just another minute and make sure we really connect with the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about. He is talking about the anger that leads to murder. But he's also talking about the anger that leads to violence and to screaming matches and to slamming doors and to stomping feet and to rolling eyes. But not only that, Jesus is talking about the anger that has no physical expression, the anger that's hidden in your heart never makes its way to the surface. Sometimes we let our angry emotions out, but sometimes we keep them in, and there they fester. And that way, if I could use a medical analogy, I think Jesus is talking about anger like a silent killer, one that you don't see any symptoms of, one that you don't see the external manifestations of, but is just as deadly to you. For me, the best example of that is resentment. You know, I'll get asked to do something And I do it, but I don't do it with a happy heart. I do it with a heart that's grumbling. Can you believe they asked me to do that? Don't they know how important I am? Don't they know how tired I am? Don't they know I had something else better to do? Don't they know they're being unreasonable? Don't they know... You get the idea. So I'm sitting there, I'm doing the thing that I've been asked to do, and I probably even have a smile on my face about it. But I'm angry in my heart about it. And I didn't kill anyone. And I didn't yell at them. I didn't even let them have it like I thought they deserved. And what Jesus is saying here is don't kid yourself. No matter how dressed up you are on the outside, no matter how good you look, if you've got anger in your heart, then you're no better off than a murderer liable to the judgment of hell. It might um, be a good thing now to ask why. I think it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying, but why is anger such a big deal? Why is it so repulsive to Jesus? It's because anger has everything to do with how we look at other people. You know, I think we know the um, feeling, the emotion of anger all too well. We're very familiar with that. But it might be hard for you to come up with a definition for it quickly. So I I came across a really good one this week that I want to read to you. Uh, It was written by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Anger is the deliberate belittling of someone's person because of the animosity and hatred of our own heart and the desire to have mastery over them. I'm going to give it to you one more time just so it can set in. Anger is the deliberate belittling of someone's person because of the animosity and hatred of our own heart and the desire to have mastery over them. See, in that way, anger is principally a sin against God because anger views people in a way that's fundamentally different than God views them. Anger views people as other, as less than, as demeaning, as beneath me. But God views people as his children whom he loves, who he made in his own image, who are worthy of respect. So when we put ourselves in the position of belittling their person through our anger, we offend the God who made them, who loves them. You know, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. How can you love someone as yourself when you're angry with them? There's no love in anger. And so when we're angry, we offend God. We sin against God. We fall short of the commandment to which he has called us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that that gets you eternal hell is that God is an infinite and holy God. In other words, when you offend an infinite God, the punishment is infinite. You know, Jonathan Edwards uh, puts it this way. It's one of my favorite Jonathan Edwards quotations, by the way. He says, Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority. God is a being infinitely lovely, So sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. Why is anger such a big deal? Because anger views people in a way that offends the God who made them. And when you offend an infinite holy God, then the punishment is infinite, eternal, wrath. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus means. But he doesn't stop there. There's actually a one-two punch of the more complete standard of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. That brings us to our second point today. You guys know that song, uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Um, I have promised my family that I will not embarrass them by singing it for you. It's good on all counts. But you know that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Jesus is actually saying here, don't be angry, be reconciled. Don't be angry, be reconciled. The total devotion, the heart-based, single-minded love for and obedience to Christ is absent anger and full of reconciliation. Look what he says in the next several verses. He gives us two stories here, two examples of what it means to be reconciled. The first one goes like this. If you're worshiping, if you're at the altar giving a sacrifice and you realize that someone has something against you, get up, go, be reconciled to them. Notice a couple of things. First, you're not the person who's angry in this story. If somebody else is angry with you, if somebody else has something against you, now it usually takes two to tango, so there is a good chance that if somebody's angry with you, you probably are angry with them, but not necessarily. The second thing is notice how urgent this is. You're worshiping. You're at the altar, and God says, it's more important than you be reconciled, Then you continue worshiping gives new meaning to the phrase in the Old Testament that obedience is better than a sacrifice, I think. Be reconciled urgently, this story tells us. The second example is a story where we're on our way to court with our accuser. Notice again here, we're the guilty party. Jesus says, be reconciled quickly or you're going to pay the consequences. And I think here it's highlighting that there are real consequences in this life. If you're not reconciled, you're going to jail, and you're going to pay every last penny of that fine. But instead of being sort of prescriptive examples of how we're supposed to handle legal situations, I think these stories are meant to show us how urgent, how imperative reconciliation is. And just like we asked, why is anger so repulsive, why is reconciliation so important to Jesus? I think it's because reconciliation is a chance for the gospel to be on full display. Just turn back a few verses. Look at the Beatitudes we've been studying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. How can you be those things when you're angry? You can't. That's the point. Anger is a destructive force that tears our heart from serving the God who loves us. It tears our heart from serving the God in the way that he calls us to with patience and kindness and love and mercy. And if anger is the opposite of everything in the Beatitudes, then I think reconciliation is the embodiment of it. It's the beautiful picture of what he calls us to. And I want to draw your attention especially to the meekness, especially to the idea Of meekness. You know, a few weeks ago when we studied this, Matt reminded us that meekness doesn't mean weakness. It's actually quite the opposite. Meekness is a quiet confidence in who you are in Christ. Meekness says, I don't need to defend myself because I know that God loves me. My identity is in Christ and that is enough. That's what being meek is. And so reconciliation has everything to do with how you see yourself and other people in light of Christ. Christ forgave me. That's who I am. I'm a forgiven person. So what I'm about is forgiveness. I'm about giving forgiveness to people, and I'm about asking for it, because Christ forgave me. I tell you, friends, this is one of those places where the rubber meets the road, because I hate apologizing. I hate it, because I hate to be wrong. I'm going to give you a couple examples. You decide which one sounds more like Jesus. The reason you're angry at me is because of how close-minded you are. You aren't really seeing me for the good person that I am. I obviously didn't mean to hurt you. Why are you being so sensitive? Eh, Gospel foul. Try this on for size. I'm so sorry that I offended you. I can tell that I was being insensitive. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I really let you down. Will you forgive me? See, in reconciliation, we have the chance to display Christ-like humility. And we should do that. But I want to challenge us today to see reconciliation as an explicit opportunity to advance the gospel. Maybe something like, you know, sometimes I think I have it all together, but if my faith has taught me anything, I know I'm so far from perfect. I'm sorry for my shortcomings. I'm sorry I did that to you. Will you forgive me? And then your friend says, what's your faith have to do with it? Gospel conversation. You have the opportunity to both display the meekness that is ours in Christ and advance the gospel in the way that we seek reconciliation. And I think at this point it's probably worth summarizing where we've come. Jesus cares about our hearts. And in this passage, he's laying out the expectation for what total, single-minded love for and devotion to Christ looks like. Followers of Jesus are absent anger and full of reconciliation. And because anger and reconciliation have everything to do with how we see people in light of Jesus, how we see ourselves in light of Jesus... Gospel issues. Now, it may strike you that we haven't talked about any exceptions so far, and we haven't talked about them because Jesus doesn't mention them in this par- in this um, paragraph, this section of Scripture. I think it's really important for us to sit under the weight of what Jesus is teaching today. Look at your life. Are there situations where you're consistently angry? Are there relationships you have that are not reconciled? That is not what Jesus calls you to. Period. It's good for us to take what he says here seriously. But as in all cases, there are some special circumstances that are worthy of discussion. I'm going to mention two of them here, but before I do, I would encourage you not to look at these as excuses not to take Jesus seriously. These are not meant as loopholes for you to get out from the weight of what Jesus is teaching. The first is righteous anger. I suspect many of you are wondering, what about righteous anger? Friends, there are things that are okay to be angry about. There are terrible things in this world, injustice. They should stir up in us righteous anger. Jesus was angry. We've seen him... Be angry in the Bible. Ephesians 4 says, In your anger, do not sin. There are things that are okay to be angry about. But if you're considering whether you're right to be angry about something, I would actually offer you a really strong caution. Because our sinful nature is so pervasive that selfish anger creeps its way in so quickly. And so if you think your anger is righteous, I would just ask you a a couple of questions. The first is, who's your anger directed at? Is your anger at God? Is your anger at people? Is your anger principally, principally because God's name has been tarnished? Or because your name has been tarnished? Are you willing to be reconciled? You see, I think... Righteous anger is always directed at sin and not the sinner. I think righteous anger is always angry because God's glory has been robbed, not your glory. And righteous anger is always willing to be reconciled. Just think about Jesus. If there was anyone who had a right to be angry, it was him, and he went to the cross with forgiveness in his heart. Now, the second thing I want to say is sometimes there are people who don't want to be reconciled to you. And that is a weighty situation. I actually count myself in that group of people. Romans 12 says, As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. Now, if we're talking about people who you're in covenant community with in this church, I'm saying in Trinity Church right now, we can expect better than that of each other. We're committed to being reconciled to one another in the unifying love of Christ. And you can expect that of your brothers and sisters. But for people who are not living in covenant with you, even those that claim to be Christians, there's not much you can do if they don't want to be reconciled with you. And that is a grievous thing. To those of you who are in that situation, I would just say this. Don't give up on them. Keep trying to be reconciled because God is big enough to bring reconciliation. God is big enough to heal that relationship. So now we're going to transition to the final point for today. Jesus is setting out a more complete standard of righteousness that should characterize his followers. You really think you're loving the Lord your God with all of your heart? You really think you're loving your neighbor as yourself? Then I ask you, are you empty of anger? Are you seeking reconciliation? Are you perfect in the way that your Heavenly Father is perfect? I think given what Jesus has said today, there's no one among us who can claim innocence before God. God wants our whole hearts. He made us to be in perfect relationship with him. And any sin at all damages that relationship. One of the main purposes of today's text is to help us recognize our poverty of spirit. It's help us to recognize our own spiritual bankruptcy. See, Jesus is helping us to see our need of a Savior. He's helping us to realize we can't come to be in relationship with God on our own. And in particular, our anger gets in the way. Our anger puts up a dividing wall that we can't break down. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Christ met the righteous requirement of the law that he is setting for us. He lived a perfect life and so fulfills the standard of total love for God that he lays out for us today. And he paid the penalty for your sin. This is an amazing thought, but I believe it to be true. On the cross, when he was hanging there, he had you in mind. He had your anger in mind. And there, on the cross, he was bearing the eternal punishment that is ours because we get angry. And, once He had paid the penalty for your sin once and for all. Because of his death and resurrection, he transferred the righteousness that he rightfully earned to you so that you might come to know your God. Your anger no longer holds you back from knowing God because Jesus stands for you. And so today's passage is meant for us to see our need for a Savior, because we can't live up to it, but it's also meant for us to love our Savior. Because as we taste the depth of our sinfulness, we can actually deeply appreciate and love the grace that is given to us. So I wonder where that leaves us. Are we just left to throw up our hands and say, well, I can never achieve the perfect standard that Christ has set before us? I can never be free of anger. I can never be reconciled to everyone. You already said it was impossible. So, I'm just going to rest in the promise that Christ died for me and not worry so much about getting angry every now and again. No. What Jesus is saying here serves two purposes. We might liken the first one to a mirror. We've talked about that already. It helps us see ourselves more clearly. See our need of a Savior. Help us see our love for our Savior. But the other purpose is what the Bible calls a lamp for our feet. It illuminates our path forward. It helps us see how do we walk forward in this life honoring God. And that way Jesus calls us to pursue reconciliation and avoid anger. We've got to stop here for just a second though because the order is so important. I want you to get this. We do not earn favor with God by pursuing reconciliation and avoiding anger. He will not love you more than he already does if you avoid anger and pursue reconciliation. He's already loved you all the way. He gave you Jesus. But once we've placed our faith in Jesus, once we've come to love him and trust him, then we want to honor God. It comes from the overflow of a loving heart. We want to do what pleases God. And here in this passage, Jesus helps us see that that free obedience that comes from loving Jesus looks like avoiding anger and pursuing reconciliation. And the Bible says, even after we're saved, we're not perfect. So, what are we supposed to do with our anger while we wait for Jesus to come again? You know, I think the first thing to do is acknowledge that you cannot fix the problem yourself. When Jesus died, he gave us his spirit. And his Holy Spirit is at work in us, making us more and more like him. And so when you realize that you're falling short of this standard, when you realize that you are angry, the first words out of your mouth should be, I'm sorry. And then the next word should be, Lord, help me. Help me in the power of your spirit to love you more and not be angry. Help me in the power of your spirit to be reconciled to this person. Help me, Jesus, I cannot do it myself. But I think more than that, anger serves as an opportunity for us to see the nature of our hearts more clearly. It's like a thermometer in our heart. It helps us take the temperature of how much we love Jesus. And in that way, I don't want you to waste a perfectly good angry outburst, actually. See, when you get angry, that's an opportunity for you to say, what is it in this moment that I love more than I love Jesus? What is it in this moment that's being withheld from me that I think I must have to be complete, to have hope, to be a person of worth? In my experience, there are three main things that people love more than Jesus when they get angry. Those are approval, comfort, and control. And each of those things bubbles up into anger when there's an unmet expectation. When you think you don't deserve, or sorry, when you think you deserve something and you don't get it, when you think something's supposed to go a certain way and it doesn't, that's when you get angry. I'm just going to give you three quick examples so you can see what I mean. The first is approval. How many of you get angry when you don't get the approval of someone who's important to you? You ever had a bad review at your job? How would you respond there? I think it's okay to be disappointed, but did you get angry? Could it be in that moment that you're seeking the approval of your supervisor more than resting in the approval that's yours in Christ? What about comfort? Have you ever been denied something that you thought was coming to you? Think about an example. If you did some work for someone and they didn't pay you, how would you respond? What I love about that example is you'd be right to be paid. I think you should be paid for the work you do. And so if someone doesn't pay you, you should ask for that. But you shouldn't get angry at them. See, in that moment, I wonder if you wouldn't be loving money, loving the comfort that comes from money more than you love the person. Doesn't Jesus say in just a few verses, if someone asks for your tunic, give them your cloak also. Or What about com- or control? I think parents get this one, um, because almost nothing is in our control. When our children do something that we don't want them to, when something doesn't go the way we want it to, like bedtime, we get angry. We get angry really quickly. And in that moment, we value control more than we value loving Jesus, more than we love our children. So I just give you these examples as an example of what I'm talking about. They're by no means exhaustive. If you're struggling with anger, I'd ask you to consider it. Do you struggle with anger because you value approval? Is it because you value comfort or control? Or is there something else that you value more than Jesus? If you're getting angry, there is something there. Don't waste your angry outburst. Take it as an opportunity to take stock of your heart. Find the sin. Repent of it. Ask Jesus to help you. You know, anger no matter what you look like on the outside, reveals about your heart that you don't love Jesus as much as you thought you did. And with that comes the eternal punishment of hell. But we're not left there. We're not left with no answer because God is both just and the justifier. He gives us Jesus that he might pay our debt that we might have his righteousness counted for us even though we didn't earn it. And through the spirit of new life in him, we might have victory over sin while we wait for him to come again. And so now as we close, I'm envisioning two ways that you might be responding to this message, two emotions that might be happening. The first one might be, that's not me. Be honest with yourself. You might be thinking, I don't have this problem. If that's you this morning, then this message is a challenge. This message is an opportunity to look into your heart, to be serious about sin, to find where you get angry, and to become more like Jesus because of it. But you might also be responding to this message in shame, in guilt, because you already knew how bad anger was. You didn't need me to remind you about it this morning. And you might want to sneak out of here before we're done singing. And if that's you this morning, then this is a message of grace. This is a message that said, Jesus came to bear your shame. Jesus came to bear your guilt. Look to him. Trust in him. Those who are furthest from grace are those who are most fit for it. God, help us to be a people who flee anger, and seek reconciliation. Father, your word says that when we have faith in Christ, you give us new hearts in the Spirit. You write your law on our hearts. You are our God, and we are your people. And you never will abandon your people. Help us, God, as we are confronted with our sin to see the glorious depth of your grace and mercy that awaits us. We, even we, are not beyond your mercy. God, there's nothing we can do to make you love us more, for you have already sent your Son. Help us to know what it looks like to honor you, to love you with everything that we are. It's in the name of your Son, In his all-glorious name and power that we pray, amen.